What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. The AFI Docs Film Fest kicks off tomorrow, so I'm saluting past honorees of its annual Guggenheim Symposium. Barbara Koppel was the second-ever recipient for a legendary career, from her 1976 Oscar winner Harlan County, USA, to her most recent film, Desert One, which we spoke about last year. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. This documentary, I mean, it's a, a harrowing film about, you know, an event that, you know, we all remember or at least read about if we weren't alive at the time. But Zero Dark Thirty sort of showed the a successful mission, but this was the flip side. This was a disaster. But what, what made you want to want to tell this story? Well, the History Channel was gonna do um a hundred pieces, feature-length documentaries on little known historical moments. And one of them was Desert One. And so we looked at Desert One and went this is incredible. I mean, this is really something that we want to do. And for me, it's a story that needed to be told. It's a story about heroism. It's a story about the horrors of war and also the roots of the conflict between, you know, our country, the United States and the Iranian government. And these men are Delta Force and special operations. And I wanted them to be able to really dig deep and to really talk about the story. And many of them burst into tears and as they remembered it and they remembered certain areas of it. And for me, it's always incredible to see people who are willing to give up their lives to save 52 Americans who were held hostage in the Iranian embassy and to get them back. So how could I say no? And it's oh, yeah. also about their families. It's about so much. Yeah, and in and, and watching it, um, I mean, what do you think the main thing that went wrong? I mean, some of them thought there was just too many moving pieces. You know, you had to fly to the aircraft carrier and then you had to fly to the desert one spot and then, which was happened to be by a road, so a busy road, little did they know. But like, do you, do you think the takeaway was that there, there was just too many moving pieces in the strategy or that it was almost like when you watch it, you get the feel with the dust storm and stuff and the cars driving by that almost like it was ill-fated in a way. The helicopters breaking down. A lot, a lot of stuff just seemed to go wrong on a fatalistic level too. Well, it was sort of Murphy's Law. They needed to have, you know, six working helicopters and they didn't. And, uh, a helicopter, you know, crashed into a C-130 and it was the fuel plane and it exploded. But I think that what was better is that this happened because of so many moving parts. 
that more people, you know, might've lost their lives because who knew even if the men were being held in the American embassy for sure, or exactly where, and they're gonna go right through the streets of Tehran and then all the way up until, you know, to the stadium and all these different spots. So I think that it was difficult, but the men really wanted to do it. They really wanted to have the backs of the other people that they were, the other soldiers who were going and, and it was their duty. It was what they, their service of that, they needed to save these other Americans, which is what this was all about. Yeah, and I love that you included um, the actual phone calls, you know, where you can hear President Carter speaking with his generals and getting the real-time updates. And man, in, in the one, it'll bring you to tears. You can, you can hear him actually choking up and sighing and being like, he's, what does he say? He's like, this is unbelievable, isn't it? And the general's like, yeah, it really is. That's never been seen before. This was a secret mission. And in this secret mission, there was no photos, there was no footage. And so this is almost as if you're reliving it, you're reliving history. And then in order to do the mission, we had this wonderful Iranian animator who did the mission and we had to recreate it through the stories of the men uh, that half, what, of what happened. Yeah, I was going to mention the animation. Um, I remember, you know, Argo <laughs> opened with animation. And uh, when I saw it pop up for you guys, and um, I think it worked out really, really nicely to be able to tell a story that you didn't have footage of. So props for yeah, that. Yeah, and what was really amazing, too, for the men is that um, they said that when they looked at the film and they saw it for the first time, they said, this is what happened. How did you do it? How did you make it? As, almost exactly as we remember it, you know, and our team really studied, you know, the helicopters and the airplanes and exactly what they looked like and what it would look like, you know, if they crashed. And so the men just said, we can't believe it. It's hard for us to look at, but you did recreate it, which is pretty phenomenal. How did you actually get access to those those phone calls? I mean, have they been under government wraps for years? Um, you know, how did you actually get the permission to put it in the movie? Well, sometimes you just you're just lucky. <laughs> I remember um, I was doing a film on uh, Mariel Hemingway, and her sister had done you know 43 hours of following the the traces of her of her grandfather, Ernest Hemingway, and nobody knew that the footage existed. And we happened to find the place where it was being held. And I mean, they literally had to blow the dust off the cans and send them to us. And it was, you know, like Christmas, we get these packages and it was the same with this. Wow, yeah, I mean, it, it really makes the movie for sure. And and not only the the, recorded calls, but you actually got, you know, new sit down interviews with President Jimmy Carter himself. Um, yeah, being able to film President Carter, it took me three months to be able to get to talk to him for, for 19 minutes and 47 seconds. Um, they told me I had to call uh, the Carter Center and speak with someone named Philip Wise and I would call the Carter Center and I'd always get his answering machine, which would say, howdy, this is Phil Wise, and I'm not in right now. And I decided to have a relationship with his uh, voicemail. 
and tell him what we were filming and how badly we needed to talk to President Carter. And, um, and I also had two friends. One friend is Bernie Aronson, who was Mondale's speechwriter, and he put in a few good words for us. And then also uh, Jerry Rashoon, who is in the film and who did the uh, campaign for Carter. And he put in a few good words for us. And then finally, one day, I pick up my cell phone and this guy says, howdy, this is Phil Wise. And I went, I know who you are. I would know that voice anywhere. So he said, all right, we've decided we're going to let you come. So we were able to come and filming him was extraordinary. I mean, it was just so incredible. And I asked him about, you know, his feelings about what happened. Um, and he said that he was heartbroken. And he said that when he was very young, his father had died and that he thought that that would be the most chilling and heartbreaking thing that would ever happen to him. But when he heard about what happened here and that eight men died, he felt those same feelings coming up again. Yeah, that was a powerful part when he said that. And um, I just think it was big of him to actually sit down and, and do the interview because in many ways, this lost him re-election. I mean, we all know the whole, the story about, you know, that Ayatollah released the hostages, the, like, within seconds or hours of uh, Reagan minute, being inaugurated. One yep. One minute after Ronald Reagan was inaugurated, but he has so much dignity and he's such a humanitarian and he had followed this all the way through and his only wish was that none of the 52 people were injured in any way and they were brought home. And he was able to go and greet them and get his wish. And the Ayatollah Khomeini just wanted to, you know, embarrass him. Yeah. And and when you're when you're speaking with him, did you get the sense that I mean it came across to me that he wasn't so much obviously he was doing the political calculation in his head of, oh crap, this could cost me the re-election. But it, to me, he more came across that he was heartbroken that people had died on his watch. He relates it to the deaths of his own family. I mean, it, is that sort of the sense you got that that the mission was more of a personal heartbreak to him than any political, you know, downfall? I think that you're exactly right. He wanted to be diplomatic and because he decided to shelter the Shah like every other president had done, which might not have been the best idea, but it's what he did and the Shah had cancer and he helped him get medical attention for the cancer, the Khomeini was really mad at him and thought he was the devil. And the only way he would talk with President Carter was if he brought the Shah back and he didn't bring the Shah back. Wow, yeah, it's a crazy uh, inflection point in history. But in terms, so you interviewed Carter, but in terms of interviewing the actual, um, you know, the military vets, how hard was it for some of them? Because, I mean, you could see the emotions. They're wearing it on their sleeves. They're tearing up. They lost their friends. And the guy describes, you know, holding his best friend in his lap as he died. I mean, um, are you guys tearing up off camera while they're crying on camera? I mean, that must have been some powerful, powerful interviews. Yeah, interviewing the guys was so powerful because this is something that they didn't talk about. They had, you know, some of them had talked about it, but some of them had never talked about it. And they had made a promise that they weren't going to talk about it. So when they finally had the moment, which was, you know, it's the 40th anniversary now, to really dig deep and to let it all out, the stories were astounding. I mean, we had so many incredible stories. And 
listening to how they felt and just to see how this has affected their whole lives and not only their lives, but the lives of their families who, you know, never know when they step out because they're special forces if they're coming back. And through this though, um, there was a organization that was created that was called the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. And that organization funds the children of people who died in service, men and women who died in service and for their education. And in the film, you see that, you know, one guy is a heart surgeon, another is a teacher. And this never could have happened without that organization. Yeah, definitely. Um, and talk about uh, your decision to show those there's some horrific images of, you know, the, the rubble and you even see the, the, the burnt bodies, which are clearly outlined of human bodies. Um, talk about how your decision to include that and also, you know, how you kind of let, you let the sound drop out. You, you know, it just kind of goes silent and we're going to show you the horrors of war right here. Talk about that decision. Well, you, you just said it. You just said it. It's all about the horrors of war. I mean, you can't homogenize this stuff. You have to know that, when you make a decision and you take a risk and you make the choice to do something like this, that really horrific things happen. And with this, it did. But it also was the first time too that the special forces began in the United States and that Marines and Navy people and other people really started working together in an organized way on different missions. Well, you've been really generous with your time and Desert One is it's a must-see documentary. But before we run, I'd be remiss if we don't at least uh, get a little bit of memories of Harlan County, USA, you know, your first Oscar-winning doc um, about the Kentucky coal miner strike. Oh, and actually you won another Oscar for American Dream, which is about the meatpacking strike in Minnesota, Hormel. Yeah. So, I mean, you've kind of, you, you kind of are the documentarian of those sort of strikes. Um, reflections of sh shooting those, um, I know you were earlier in your career, but also knowing sort of where the country went and how trying to bring coal back, uh, opponents would say it's not coming back, we got to pivot to new energies. But, you know, I mean, it just seems, it's, it's wild looking back at that time, but, you know, just memories of, of shooting that film and, you know, not knowing where the country would, would head. Well, I think shooting that film, it was one of my first films. Um, and for me, it was quite extraordinary because I learned what life and death was all about because the miners were trying to get the union of their choice in Eastern Kentucky, where there were no unions at the time and people were allowed to carry guns. And a miner was killed by a company foreman. And it was the same kind of thing of people standing up for what they believed in. And for me, it just taught me so much about the strengths of, of human beings and how standing up is so critically important to who you are as a person and makes you strong and that if you stand up, others will stand up with you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the greatest documentaries of all time. Um, oh, so thank thanks for doing you. that and a long successful career. And so everyone, you know, it's, it's appointment viewing uh, whenever you make a movie. So here we go, Desert One, documentary Desert One. Hey, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.
I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.